0: flushcarecom slash
1: You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies. Welcome to Marketing Today. I'm your host, Alan Hart, managing partner of Atomic, combining brand science and creative fire. Today on the show, I've got Molly Swenson, CMO of Riot. Molly was named at Adweek's 2016 Young Influentials. Molly's not your traditional CMO. She leads the digital media company Riot, which includes shooting films in countries across five continents. The company's been nominated for a trifecta of high-profile prizes for films highlighting some of the most hard-hitting and heart-wrenching topics. He received an Oscar nomination in the Best Documentary Short category for Body Team 12, a film about the Ebola crisis in Liberia. Today on the show, we're going to talk about virtual reality, augmented reality, and 360-degree video, among a lot of other topics. You're going to enjoy this conversation. This is a little bit longer than our normal podcast, but I think it's well, well worth it. Well, Molly, thank you for coming on the show. I'd love it if you could just share a little bit about what Riot is all about.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, I love talking about Riot in particular to people who have never heard of us before. <laughs> I'm hoping at some point I get to a place where it goes without saying, but we're not there yet. <laughs> um, so we started the company about four years ago at this point, and. The goal was, when we launched, to be the first news site that linked every single story to an action that the reader could take. So essentially, here's what's going on in the world, and here's what you can do about it. Um, And we launched the website on the day that Hurricane Sandy hit the East Coast. So it was a really interesting moment to prove the model of news plus action um, and prove that there was an appetite for it. And you know, the goal really was to make the news less depressing, primarily. Um, I think a lot of us see consuming the media as a nihilistic or masochistic pursuit at this point, point. and I think we just wanted to give a different perspective on it. So the founding team, myself included, were all from sort of the humanitarian space, and the two other co-founders are documentary filmmakers as well, so that led pretty organically into the build-out of Riot's documentary films arm, Riot Films. Fast forward now about four years, you know, that films arm has produced about 20, 20 documentaries, one of which was nominated for an Oscar this last year, another for a Peabody. We have um, a creative services arm that started off working only with nonprofits and built up to sort of brands as well. And then a news a news organization that that goes out and covers breaking news all over the world, primarily at this point in VR and 360. And our jump into that world was really early and bullish compared to sort of the rest of the media industry. We we have about 200 VR films made at this point, and the way we see it is, you can make the argument that it is maybe the platform shift. Regardless of that, it's a platform shift, and for for news, the use case we think is particularly interesting in helping people understand. headlines um, in particular headlines that are happening thousands and thousands of miles away from them and giving people a better sense of, of the news and a deeper understanding
1: so you're now doing a bunch of VR did it start that way or did you start with documentary films
2: so we started off doing exclusively written editorial content then brought our filmmaking chops in and started doing digital video and documentary films and then it was about a year and a half ago that we started making vr films and the the first vr film that we did was the one where there was a little light bulb moment the first light bulb moment um, of two i should say it was a solitary confinement experience we had a friend of ours in venice a director named matthew cook who's also an amazing prison reform advocate build a solitary confinement cell in his backyard it was primarily to put his friends in it so that try and try and generate empathy for inmates which I think unless you've seen the inside of a solitary confinement cell is actually unsurprisingly hard to do. Um, And most of us will never see the inside of a prison cell, let alone a solitary confinement cell. So to him, it was this important, this important practice where he was like, look, just see how long you can stay in, in that cell. And then he would go on to say, well, you know, there's 80,000 Americans that are in solitary confinement. Also, We have no laws against youth solitary confinement, so we're allowed to lock kids in boxes. I mean, it's insane. So we did basically a rudimentary still image inside that solitary confinement cell and had it narrated by a guy that had been wrongfully convicted of murder, put into prison. While he was in prison, killed a guy in self-defense, and then was put into solitary for what was going to be, I think, a 20-year sentence. And he was ultimately exonerated by DNA evidence and released early and sued the state and won and all this. But he's walking you through his experience in this virtual reality environment. So you're looking around if you're watching this film and all you see is a bed and a door and a toilet. And you're hearing about the horrors that this guy went through as an innocent man who'd been convicted and was in this cell 23 hours a day, seven days a week. And you just think about what that's going to do to your psyche. And then we paired it with as I mentioned, this ACLU petition to ban youth solitary confinement because every piece of content we put out has some sort of a call to action. And and we'd been basing our success or gauging our success, I should say, as a news organization for years at that point, not only on how many people we were getting to come to the site and how many people were liking our Facebook page and watching our films, but also on how many people we were converting from passive reader or viewer into active participant. And when we premiered this film, this VR film at Tribeca Film Festival in their interactive section and gave people the petition afterwards to sign, we saw it was close to a hundred percent conversion rate. And we'd never made a piece of content that, that was that powerful. So that was the moment where we were like, huh, I wonder if we should start doing some more VR films. And it was also the same weekend at Tribeca that we saw for the first time this Hero 360 uh, GoPro-based 360 camera rig. Um, so it was the first time there was a prosumer-grade camera that you could bring out into the field, not worrying about it malfunctioning or breaking and costing you thousands and thousands of dollars. So we were really, really excited to try this in the field. And then 24 hours after the Tribeca award ceremony happened, the Nepal earthquake hit. And we were on a plane the next morning, our co-founder, um, to Kathmandu, and we got him the one VR 360 rig this GoPro rig that we knew in the city of New York and he brought it with him to Kathmandu and set it up to capture footage while he was dispersing aid and while he was in the food lines and digging out rubble and what he came back with was the first immersive footage of a disaster zone ever recorded we cut it into this short film called the Nepal Quick Project we had our friend Susan Sarandon do a voiceover for it um, and immediately it got a ton of media attention and the reactions that we were seeing when we showed it to people were even more intense than the solitary confinement piece. And that was a moment where we were like, oh, this has got to become the tip of the spear for us. Because if we're, if we're trying to create as great an impact as we possibly can with our stories and our storytelling, then this is our medium. And that's when we went out to all of our nonprofit partners that we'd been linking our stories to for years And said, hey, let us make you a VR film for your upcoming fall galas. It'll be an incredible fundraising tool, probably the most impactful piece of media you create maybe ever. They all came back and said, yes, of course, let's do this immediately. And we realized that we had no one to outsource that production work to. So over the next six months, we built up what became one of the largest production facilities for this kind of live action VR filmmaking in the country. And we went to 40 countries and we got tapped by the Associated Press and the Huffington Post and the New York Times and NPR and all these other major media companies to to start doing VR news for them and VR journalism. And it was around that time that Bryn and I, my co-founder, and I, were going out for our Series A round of funding, and then a few of the major media companies that we walked into to ask for investment, including the Huffington Post, sort of sized us up and said, "How about we buy you instead?" <laughs> and we said, "No, no, thanks." <laughs> then, really, really, you yeah, said no at first. We okay. said no first. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, but that's sort of the that was our entry into VR and sort of how it happened, and it didn't it didn't feel like a pivot. It just felt like an exploration of an emerging format that was going to give us the best shot at fulfilling our potential as a news organization.
1: Right. And that's funny. You describe it as a news organization. Mm -hmm. What does a CMO do at a news organization?
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great, great question. Um, So at that point I was the COO, which basically means everything under the sun when it's a company going from three people to 35 people and from
1: so that means you took out the trash. Privately right?
2: funded, too. Oh, yeah. It's plenty of taking out the trash. Plenty of uh, trucking around New York and L.A. with VR headsets in my backpack and sort of Willie Loman style. Um, and what happened once we got acquired was basically the opportunity for me to sort of uh, move into a role that just had less sort of business operations and back office spreadsheet work that I was more than happy to do. and. More or less qualified, I suppose, but um, wasn't ultimately where I wanted to spend most of my time, um, and into a more public-facing role, one that involved a lot of both internal advocacy within Huffington Post and AOL, and keeping everyone informed of what we're doing, the announcements that we have upcoming, and partnerships, as well as a lot of our sales. I was I was initially going to be chief revenue officer, (laughs) post acquisition and. Ultimately, I, I, the way I felt about that title was that it felt, and no offense to any chief revenue officers out there, mad respect, it felt a little predatory to me. And if I was going to be going right. into meetings with huge partners that we were trying to structure deals with, I didn't want to have revenue in my title. It just, it, it felt a little transparent. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it, start, it It definitely starts off on a foot. It may not be yeah. the right one,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah or, yeah. or it may be. I mean, I think that You know, I think that it for for an organization like the New York Times, say, and the chief revenue officer there is a woman that I respect deeply. That's a title that carries a lot of incredible responsibility and weight and is a very powerful position. But I think within a smaller organization, I I was happy to run the sales team, which I am currently, (laughs) but wanted a little bit more flexibility to go on the road and be a representative of Riot and of HuffPost externally. Great.
1: What's it like to be a, a non-traditional marketer? I mean, do you, do you have a marketing background at all? No. Or is this you're learning it as you go?
2: Uh, no, I don't. I don't have a traditional marketing background. Uh, absolutely not. I My my path to get to Riot was somewhat circuitous. I thought I was going to be a paralegal, go to law school, do that whole track. Ended up instead getting an internship at the White House. This is all directly after college. Internship at the White House while there i um i auditioned for american idol and ended up making it pretty far and when i came out to la for hollywood week i was pretty being pretty realistic about my chances of actually becoming the next american idol and instead of you know spending all of my time with the other contestants and uh, ingratiating myself to the judges i applied for jobs out in la <laughs> and interviewed and so after i was eliminated this was season 10. Um, so back in 2011, I got offered a job with what was on paper, at least my dream job with a company called Global Philanthropy Group that does um, philanthropic consulting for celebrities and high net worth individuals. So it was, it was amazing. My first, my first three clients were Kobe Bryant, Shakira, and Ben Stiller <laughs> and so I was running their foundations. And you know, what that amounted to was a combination of social media marketing and fundraising and operations and speech writing and ghostwriting and partnerships and um, probably half a dozen other things that I can't think of off the top of my head. But that was, you know, that was incredible and such an amazing learning opportunity um, to be working on high profile important projects that felt like that felt like they were really making an impact on the world, whether they were leveraging these individual social capital and their fan bases or their actual capital. And that's how I met Bryn and David, the co-founders of Riot, was through Ben Stiller because they were working down in Haiti and all of the Stiller Foundation's work or all the grant making that I did for the Stiller Foundation on behalf of Ben was to education projects in Haiti. And so I was essentially giving my co-founder, my current co-founder is Brennan David, Ben Stiller's money. (laughs) (laughs) So so we should really,
1: we should really thank Ben Stiller. We should definitely thank Ben Stiller. And I did get
2: to recently, actually, we we saw him in New York a couple of months ago, and I hadn't seen him since I worked for the foundation. And I don't think he knew that I credit him entirely with the success of Riot um, and my involvement with it, (laughs) which I do. Wow. So no, I have no actual traditional marketing experience. I have a lot of experience making things happen and sort of management of sort of project management from soup to nuts. And and I think a lot of it is just sort of production, I would call it, even at this point, right? Like I've, I've sort of become a producer de facto of all of Riot's documentaries and a lot of our virtual reality films. And... From my perspective, being a producer is really just sort of problem-solving on an as-needed basis. <laughs> and marketing is its great because the marketing side is, is you have the luxury of being proactive about a lot of this. Um, right. And I think that we were sort of flying by the seat of our pants for four years to a large extent. And there was a lot more sort of inbox management than like outbox proactivity, as we like to talk about. And one of the things that's been so nice about this transition is actually getting the time to... Plan.
1: <laughs> I like that. I, I think there's a lot of marketers out there, a lot of CMOs that would love to just be able to say, Well, I make things happen. That's that's yeah. my job title. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. I, th- I think everyone wants a little bit more of that and a lot less of the other things.
2: True.
1: I should have said this earlier, but congrats on being named a 2016 Young Influential by Adweek. I know why oh, thank now. You. <laughs> I know why. <laughs> but what what is Recognition like that mean to you?
2: Well, first, I was really excited because it was one of the first pieces of press that I've gotten in my adult life that didn't mention American Idol. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to ask, yeah, should we ever... be singing this reply? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe, maybe the next one. I'll prepare some some sort of <laughs> performance piece. <laughs> um, but no, I I think it's. I mean, first of all, it was completely humbling and such an honor um especially considering who else was on the list you know donald Glover is i've been such a fan of for so long he's really amazing there's a great friend of mine nick bell who's mm-hmm. on there and he's also amazing and you know ivanka trump being on there is just wild <laughs>
1: considering especially today the timing. Yeah. right? yeah
2: and carly kloss is i think an incredible role model um so you know there are there, there are people on there that i have thought to myself Multiple times in the last year, wow, what an amazing individual. And so being in that company just felt just really amazing. And I think that when they they did some some interviews at the at the young influentials event in New York a couple of weeks ago, and they sort of asked about, you know if you had advice to impart to any young folks out there, what would it be? And I feel like, If you listen to my, my backstory, (laughs) this makes a lot of sense, which is that don't worry if you don't know what you want to do exactly and just keep aligning yourself with people that are smarter and more creative and more successful than you and learning from them, you'll be fine. (laughs) So that's a lot of what my career has amounted to.
1: That's great advice for anybody, uh, regardless whether they're young or old, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, um, you mentioned this a little bit before, but Riot was acquired by, um, I guess technically it's Verizon now, but AOL and and therefore kind of assigned into the Huffington Post division. What what are you, you know, what what do you think that means in terms of what the future brings, and and you know, what is there to look forward to with that collaboration?
2: Well, you know, I think, and you mentioned Verizon, AOL, and Huffington Post, and on every level there's something to be excited about, right? So on the Huffington Post level, there was no other media company that I think we could have seen joining forces with, right? We weren't looking for acquisition, but the reason we did is because of the leadership team at the Huffington Post, because of what the Huffington Post stands for, our missions being so aligned. You know, for me, the fact that it was started by and up until recently run by one of the most successful female entrepreneurs in the world, arguably mattered. And, and you know, the, the, the scale of their editorial output gave us an opportunity to scale back, which is really exciting. So we were no longer having to churn content. We could focus in on the high quality premium pieces that we wanted to spend more time on. Um, at the AOL level, that infrastructure is just so exciting. I mean, Tim Armstrong is a visionary and such an incredible advocate of the brands that AOL owns. And he loves nothing more than to say, we'll give you guns, money and steel to do what you're doing and to build your brand. And so having that infrastructure backing us, even though we still feel like a scrappy startup at times is just incredible. And then, and then Verizon, I mean, we sort of see the mobile phone as the most the biggest revolution in journalism and media since the printing press. Um, and we talk about that often. And we, you know, we're one of the first companies to really go out there and try and scale content creation using using mobile phones. And so we had a partnership with Apple a couple of a year or so ago where, you know, they gave us some, some phones to put out in the world as part of a denizen journalist initiative. We, um, you know, we shot a couple documentaries on... The iPhone, um, our doc that was nominated for an Oscar this year was shot entirely on a GoPro and an iPhone, and so as far as as far as phones as a capture device, we see it as sort of the most democratized tool in storytelling that exists right now, and the fact that you can sort of consume, curate, create, uh, distribute all on one device as just this incredible moment that we're living through, and having the largest Telecom company in the United States as your parent and getting some insight into where they're heading and the ways that they're thinking and what's coming is is just sort of the greatest opportunity that we could imagine. Um, and so we're actually working really closely with the Verizon team. They uh, the Verizon Wireless tech team came into the office a couple of weeks after the aqu- acquisition and said, "We love what you're doing. How can we help?" And we said, oh my god! Well, we've had two engineers for our entire existence, so there's a lot you can do now. <laughs> and we sort of gave them our tech roadmap, and they dove right in, and have just been blowing our minds ever since. Um, they launched a brand new proprietary 360 player slash gaming engine built on Unity. That's going to be able to be distributed across any AOL property on any device and platform. Uh, we just launched with L. I'm not sure if you saw this this news about this, but a, an augmented reality SDK. Um, and we have a deep partnership with Hearst that we're working on right now to sort of reinvigorate and revitalize and give 21st century relevance to print by using augmented reality technology and mobile technology. And so, so yeah, I mean, I think we're just so excited about the, the possibility of achieving impact at scale, an impact not only in journalism, but also in advertising, you know, the, the structure of support that we have and our ability to get products to market at scale pretty much immediately means that we have a real opportunity to sort of revolutionize the, intra- the industry on a number of fronts. And we we don't take that lightly. It's a, it's a great, amazing responsibility. So we're looking forward.
1: What do you think... Is coming for Riot. How how are you working yourself into the fabric of this big, large matrix? I'm assuming organization. Mm-hmm. Um, are you are you trying to do it in a very deliberate way, or or is it just wherever you see the
2: need? It's definitely a combination. You know, I I think that what's what's great about how we're positioned right now within sort of the AOL Verizon media family. Is you know you think about Verizon now owns AOL, they own Yahoo, um, Huffington Post, TechCrunch, UnGadget, Makers, um, MSN. I mean, all of these these massive media companies, but none of them are focused specifically on premium video or on emerging formats. So we get to sort of be this little innovation arm that can work across brands, uh, that can work with other companies entirely on these types of this type of content. And so I think what's coming, you know, on the, I'd say, on the traditional format side, is we're getting into t- TV development, And I say TV, and it's hard to even know what's meant by that now, right? Right. Like, what even defines TV? Is it where the device you watch it on? Not really, because you can watch HBO on your phone. Is it the budget? Not really, because like YouTube and Amazon have gigantic budgets as well. Is it the stars that are in it? Not really. Like, it's sort of hard to to even describe how the segmentation is is occurring. But for now, what I mean by that is sort of big budget episodic linear video development we're we're just really really excited about entry into that world on sort of the advertising side the history of digital advertising i'd say sort of littered with examples of where brands like aol i mean i was guilty of it for sure where they fail to put consumers at the center so it's like spam and pop-ups and banners and as a result You know, we resist advertising. Generally, millennials just hate advertising. And that means the entire ecosystem of brands and publishers and consumers is sort of suffering and in need of change. And it's not just a matter of sort of making content itself more more valuable. It's also, you know, we have to sort of take a stand to deliver ads in consumer-first formats. And so AOL is sort of looking to us to... To take emerging formats like augmented reality and virtual reality, and find a way for brands to enter, um, and find a way to make to make consumers not hate advertising anymore. And you know, all right. of our all of our entries into these sorts of emerging technologies have been. In service of journalism and news and nonprofits, and they've all been sort of a hack as we saw it to get people to pay attention to content that they might not otherwise right to make what's important interesting you know we if we just made a normal nepal fundraising video and put it out online no one would have seen it but because we did it in virtual reality and it was a first of its kind piece of content like in vr in an industry where really all we were seeing is sort of gaming and porn in that world you know that was a that was a hack to get people to care about what was happening 3000 miles away and to give them proximity and the way we see it is proximity is an antidote to apathy and i think that can be applied not only in journalism but also in in marketing right like bring people in find a reason for them to engage and to participate and you'll be much more effective and so right. that's what we're being given the liberty to explore and experiment with right now by AOL so that's super exciting
1: that's awesome. So are you collaborating with agencies or how, how does that work? How, how are you brought into those kind of advertising or branded content discussions?
2: Yeah. So Riot's relationships are mostly brand direct. Um, and often we sort of came in through a side door of like the comms team or the corporate social responsibility team into massive organizations like PepsiCo and Apple and Google and Facebook and Samsung as opposed to through an agency or through the marketing team. That's where most of our relationships are built. But then AOL, of course, has huge existing relationships with most of the biggest agencies in the world and now have Riot sort of as an offering. It's a combination, truly. I mean, I think that the agencies are usually not the first to dive into with big investments, emerging formats (laughs) that tends to be uh, the brands themselves. And usually again, these sorts of like smaller money pockets of the organizations rather than the marketing team. And it has to be proven before marketing will dump big dollars into it. But I think we're just getting to the point where agencies are starting to see real distribution power for 360 video and for VR and certainly real scale for augmented reality. So yeah we're working with both i'd say
1: can you give me and the listeners can you give us a little tutorial we've talked about 360 degree ar and vr can you give us just mm-hmm. for those that are just learning about this what is what do i need to know
2: yeah sure so the difference between 360 video vr and ar mostly has to do with the type of content and the device you consume it on so riot produces 360 video which you can watch in a 360 video player like Facebook 360, YouTube 360, uh, Apple TV now. I don't know if everyone knows, but if you have a new Apple TV, there's an app called Little Star, and you can watch 360 video on your Apple TV. Um, Also Samsung, Gear VR, Google has a Daydream player that's coming out soon. Um, They're all 360 video players. You can also watch on a VR headset an HMD like the Vive or the Oculus, and that's a fully immersive headset environment as opposed to sort of a 360 experience, uh, which isn't fully immersive. There's actually surprisingly a, sort of a lack of consensus on <laughs> the vocab and the vernacular, even among oh, people that have been doing this. So, you know, there's some people that say, oh, what Riot's doing isn't VR. And certainly it's, it's not as advanced as the entirely computer generated stuff that you know, emblematic group is doing, for instance. Bryn and I sort of came around to the idea that what we're doing could be VR if it's viewed in a VR headset when we heard Clay Baver of Google and Jessica Brillhart, um, both of whom are on the Google VR team, talk about 360 video as VR. So, so to, to me, the way I see it is it depends on the device you're consuming it. If you have a fully immersive headset, then you're watching VR. And if you don't, then you're watching 360 video. And then augmented reality is not fully immersive. It actually employs camera technology so that you're augmenting or adapting to the environment that's around you. So for instance, QR codes is one sort of example that we use to describe how AR technology works, where you use something as an image trigger. Anything can be an image trigger and it triggers additional digital content. For instance, what we did with L for their November Women in Hollywood issue is if you download the L app, the L Now app and hold it over the cover of any of the November L the November Ls, then it will trigger a video um, interviewing some of the women in Hollywood that they featured. Oh wow! Yeah, it's a really it's a cool experience. I was just at the the Women in Hollywood dinner last night, and they gave us a really lovely shout out, which we were very happy about. Um, <laughs> and. And the way we see it is, it's an opportunity for for marketers to get more mileage out of print assets, outdoor assets, and even digital assets. You know, take for instance, you know, if Mercedes has uh, an ad that they are putting everywhere, from GQ and Esquire to billboards to digital banner ads. If someone has the Mercedes app and that has our augmented reality SDK integrated someone could hold their phone over any of these existing Mercedes assets and could be delivered information about where the nearest dealership is or exclusive content with one of their brand ambassadors or some sort of a test drive scenario. Um, And that content can change daily. It can change based on where someone is triggering the experience from. It basically creates a ton of additional value for those those print assets. And I think makes it really much more exciting for the consumer. They want to engage in some sort of a novel experience like that. So again, it's sort of a consumer-first ad format, which to us is really exciting. That was certainly not the first use case that we thought of when we started playing around with augmented reality. I think the first thing we did was we developed a little image trigger using the ISIS flag to change it into a rainbow gay pride flag. <laughs> <laughs> and the second one was during the North Carolina bathroom protests, bathroom lock protests. We were making every bathroom sign an image trigger into a gender inclusive bathroom sign. And I love it. So, just love it. So all of all of our, like I said, all of our introductions into these sorts of emerging technology experiences are because we want to we want to start a conversation. We want to get people to pay attention to stuff they wouldn't otherwise. And then the implications for brands are just Massive.
1: One of the things I've heard, especially as it relates to virtual reality, is that it's really expensive. But early on, you talked about um, prosumer cameras coming out. One, is it expensive or is that a myth? And then two, I, mean, I guess obviously it's going to get cheaper as we go.
2: Yeah, I mean, the reason it was expensive initially is because there is an additional step in the post-production process with VR, depending on the camera you use, where you actually have to physically stitch all of the memory cards together in order to start the editing process. And that can take a long time, depending on how many cameras you're using. That was one thing. The second was just that there weren't very many people doing it. Demand was really high and supply was really low. And now both on the technology side and the creators, supply is increasing. The prices are dropping. are pretty close to, if not the same, as sort of linear video production. And where it gets expensive is in the same sorts of, you know, economies of scale that you see in digital video or in cinema or commercial video. And that has to do with animation and graphics, um, anything that requires heavy lifting from sort of a rendering or, or computer generation perspective.
1: So we've been talking about tech. I want to shift a little bit to talk about storytelling. And um, I was recently at another conference um, and John Landau, I guess he was the producer slash director of Titanic and mm. other films as well. But he was talking about, we were talking about VR and storytelling. His thought was that regardless of the tech, you've still got to be, a, you got to tell a good story. Otherwise people aren't yeah. going to watch. And I'm curious what your take is on storytelling and if there's any tips or advice you have for marketers out there.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think with VR in particular, when the technology first came out, it was enough to just sort of put you underwater swimming with with some wild dolphins and have you experience that. Um, Not much of a story, more of just a trip. Um, But, and you know, I think that there is there still is potential within VR to create a really incredible moving experience that doesn't have a story necessarily. I think that you use VR when you want to take someone somewhere and putting them in a place that isn't readily accessible is, is an experience and is one that most people won't forget in particular if it's their first VR experience. But I do think that the bar is being set higher now and where we're sort where I'm sort of seeing it go is rewatchability, right? How rewatchable is something. And that has more to do with, I think details and just pure sort of like aesthetic choices as much as it does with story. I think that when it comes to when it comes to storytelling though and I don't want to I don't want to diminish the importance of storytelling not at all but I just think that with emerging formats you have a little bit of leeway between the time it's invented and the time where the content market for it becomes saturated where you don't actually have to focus on it so much. Mm. We're, we're nearing the end of that point and you know some of the new sort of storytelling that we're trying out in virtual reality is really exciting you know for instance we just sold a vr comedy series to hulu that we we're sort of billing as the portlandia of vr and you know we were able to get really incredible comedy talent on board to to direct and produce and star in it because they're all really excited about the prospect of telling jokes in a new way anytime there's like a birth of a, there's a birth of a medium, you get to think about new ways of telling jokes. And in VR's case, a lot of it is sort of choreography based or set design based or lighting based in a way that normal digital video doesn't have to be because you can direct attention however you want. We're having a lot of fun with that and with making the viewer an actual character in these comedy sketches <laughs> or in the comedy episodes. Um, and they're being interacted with in very awkward ways. And the wow. whole point is to make you sort of laugh uncomfortably and <laughs> tell all your friends to to watch it so you can see them squirm. <laughs> um, a lot of our, and you know, I think that Titanic is certainly no exception to this. A lot of our strategy in storytelling is based around characters creating a character-driven approach. You know, every documentary that Riot did for its first two years in existence, we didn't set out to make a documentary. It just sort of happened because we were in the field in some sort of post-disaster or crisis situation and found an individual whose story was just so compelling that we couldn't help but tell it. So that happened after the cholera epidemic broke out in Haiti a few years ago. We told the story of the cholera epidemic through the eyes of one of the Little League baseball players on the Little League team that we started in Haiti. The next film was done in the wake of Hurricane Sandy. And it was uh, The subject was a surfer from Breezy Point who had lost his home in the fire on Breezy Point. And then the one that was nominated for the Oscar was when our co-founder was in Liberia at the height of the Ebola outbreak, He was embedded with a team of body collectors, volunteer body collectors, who literally went around every single day, collected and swabbed and recorded the locations of the bodies of the dead around the city. And the only woman on this team of 12 volunteer Red Cross body collectors became the subject of the documentary. She's just this incredibly resilient, beautiful force. You know, In each of those, with the cholera epidemic post-hurricane Sandy and the Ebola outbreak... Humanizing those issues through an individual was the key to their success, um, and I think the same goes for for a lot of the stuff that we're making. Right, there are so many incredible individuals out there who deserve a lot more than some people that are dominating airwaves and TV waves to be put on pedestals and to be. Um, to be celebrated. And so that's sort of where our focus lies is in identifying those individuals and finding really authentic connections to brands if there is one and bringing their stories to life.
1: So I'm going to shift gears even more. We're going to step back and step back from Riot. I want to talk about you um, mm-hmm. and what fuels you, what what drives you.
2: It's a great question. You know, I've been wondering it since I was really young. <laughs> um, my parents didn't really have to do much To motivate me, I was like the kid that sort of woke up at six in the morning and like made my own lunch and walked like eight blocks in the dark to the bus and like just sort of did did that because I sort of on some level that's sort of what I had to do. You're making it happen at that age. I was just sort of make yeah, just sort of like making it happen. And I think a lot of it, honestly, once I got to an age where I recognized that this was important, was fueled by (laughs) keeping my options open because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So it was like, okay, I know if I get the best grades I possibly can, then I can go to the best college that I possibly can, and that just doesn't close doors. And then when I got to college, it was like, okay, what's your major going to be? And I literally chose the one that allowed me to avoid commitment to one particular area of study <laughs> as long as possible. <laughs> and it was literally the major is called social studies. I'm not kidding. This It sounds a lot less impressive. <laughs> when you like, it has the same name as your favorite class in eighth grade. Um, But essentially it was a, you know, it was a combination of all the social sciences and you could craft a focus within that. And so I studied psychology, economics, and sociology, all of which have amazing sort of real world applications as well, even if my studies didn't specifically. And then, you know, upon graduating again, it was this, this idea of like, I don't, I still don't know. Like I feel like I should know by now what I want to do, but I don't know, so I'm just going to keep sort of trying to build skills and keep trying to live in different cities and keep trying to figure it out. But, but I don't. Bars what what fuels me now? You know, I think I don't know if I know anyone successful that isn't fueled at least in part by self doubt. Um, and I think, as in particular as a woman, there's a really fine line that we don't talk about very often, that you have to walk between sort of like unfaltering, unwavering confidence and like complete humility and trying to achieve both of those at once is like really challenging. And you have, you know, you have all of these narratives of like lean in and like ask for what you want and like be a hard negotiator and like do all that, but also be so humble and be so... You know, aware of your limitations and your your contributions, and sort of what you still have yet to learn. And for me, it's a lot of what drives me is trying to success successfully strike that balance on on a personal and professional level.
1: That's fascinating. In particular, like I, I don't know what I'm looking for. Is there is there a thought or an idea or a a, a moral code, <laughs> for lack of a better word, that that you have that helps you find that balance between those two things?
2: I wish. As soon as I find it, I will let you know. It's <laughs> like well, a mantra. Yeah, yeah I'm going to start thinking about right, it. Right, right, right. Um, no, I mean, I think it's it's circumstantial, a, a lot of it. And it, it's unsurprisingly highly variable depending on who you're interacting with and their own personal experience, right? Like mm-hmm. when I'm with my co-founder, I have a very different relationship than you know with some of our investors or with my employees and the amount of confidence or humility that you need to project in any situation with an individual based on what you know about what they are like (laughs) and um, what they respect is I think it's it's always this sort of moving target and it's always sort of real-time decision making and guessing and checking but you know I, I mean I think as far as rules to live by like I don't know. Kindness looks good on everyone. <laughs> like, to me, there's, there's almost no excuse for being an asshole. Um, but, <laughs> but at the same time, right. Like you see Steve jobs and like you watch that documentary and it was right. funny. I was giving my co-founder crap a couple of months ago. Cause he like came into the office and was being just like, really hard-assed about everything and like kind of ordering people around. I was like, what is going on? And then he mentioned sort of offhand that he'd watched Jobs the night before. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I see what's going on here.
1: Steve Jobs moment.
2: Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I I think that probably it's it's just like in general, the way I see wisdom is like the accumulation of diverse perspectives that you can call upon in any moment to give yourself the appropriate perspective on, on things. And there's this great, uh, I think it's sort of a Kabbalah. It, it might be rooted in Kabbalah. And I don't want to turn anyone off by saying that I'm sort of mad that I even said it. Cause it's like, eh, people have a lot of thoughts about Kabbalah, even if they have no idea what it is, including myself before I even sort of read into it at all. But there's a, it's a parable, I guess, or that says you want to be like the eagle in the sky, the snake on the rock. And, The fire in the belly and what that means is the eagle in the sky looks down and sees how small everything is and has just like a perspective on the scope and the scale of things that appear to be crises in the moment but then ultimately aren't (laughs) to me i sort of think of the charlie chaplin quote that's like life in close-up is a tragedy but zoom out and it's a comedy (laughs) i'm paraphrasing (laughs) Um, but that and then the snake on the rock is if you think that you don't have to move or change to get around an obstacle, you're probably wrong. You're going to have to remain flexible and you're going to have to remain um, adaptable in order to overcome. And that being hard-headed probably isn't going to be successful in the long term. And then the fire in the belly, and this is the part that sort of is a little bit... I mean, even in this parable, it's like there's there's sexism present, but it's, right. it rings true, which is that fire in the belly is supposed to be how a man loves a woman, and you're supposed to bring that passion to everything you do. I think it could, same can could be said the other way around. Yeah, um, I think I think you're right. But I, I like that because, in particular, sort of the the flexibility and the perspective and the passion. If you look at those, yeah. if you sort of break them out into sort of three three segments, those those are all highly important and valuable. I think. Not just professionally, but but personally. Love that.
1: What brands, companies, people, or causes do you think people should take notice of?
2: Hmm, good question. Um, the company that blew my mind the most recently was the Magic Leap demo that I saw. Their CMO actually is a guy named Brian Wallace, who you should absolutely try and get on this at some point because he's brilliant. And the stuff that they're doing is just, no pun intended, leaps and bounds (laughs) ahead (laughs) of where most of even the thinking is right now on the direction that sort of wearables are going to take, that mixed reality is going to have on... The world of media and information consumption. So I would just sort of encourage everyone to to check out that. I have a girlfriend who's doing something that I think is fucking rad. Her company is called Embellus. They just raised their first round of funding from some really great investors. And it's basically, she's trying to crush the SATs and the ACTs. Um, She's this amazing girl, um, Harvard dropout, who we didn't know each other at school. We only met out after I moved to LA. But you know, she, she feels like the traditional test-taking methods um, that the college board employs, in addition to sort of higher education in general, are like severely flawed. It's essentially, her company is trying to introduce game-based assessments. So think like SimCity with psychometrics baked in as an opportunity for employers and admissions officers to better understand human potential with sort of more, I don't know, a book view instead of like a chapter view of applicants' skills and abilities. She's going to crush it. (laughs) Nice.
1: Last question. What do you predict for the future of marketing in particular?
2: Well, this is maybe prescriptive rather than predictive, but we'll see (laughs) if I end up being (laughs) right about it. I do think that we're going to see a fusion of sort of entertainment and content and marketing and we already are starting to see that right you see stuff like the lego movie and like chipotle sponsoring documentaries and brands getting involved in feature film production i just think that what we're probably going to see or what we should see is brands and marketers giving a little bit more leeway and trust to creators to make something amazing marketers have they're very precious about their brands in a way that I think can be detrimental sometimes, you know, no one is going to watch a piece of amazing content that was presented by Lexus or whoever and be like, oh, I hate that awesome piece of content because Lexus presented it. No, they're gonna be like, oh, dope, that was an amazing piece of content. And cool. Now I have some additional like respect for or brand affinity for whatever brand made that possible. And I just think that, you know, the, the more you try and sort of square peg round hole things or introduce product placements that aren't authentic or try and like script out brand values in a piece of content that's being done like the the worst it's going to turn out frankly so we you know we're hopeful that that brands are going to start being more more trusting and open to collaborations that lend creative control to the creators um because i think that's where. Consumers certainly would like to see it go. So not to put
1: words in your mouth, but let brands breathe, essentially.
2: Yeah, let brands breathe, sure. And I think (laughs) let creators that you trust and respect... Create. Create um, on behalf of your brand. Because if you're hiring them in the first place, hopefully you trust them and you think that their creative instincts and impulses and creations are great. If you just give them the means to do more of that, presumably they're going to do more of that. (laughs) So um, that should be enough.
1: Well said. Well said. Well, thank you for coming on the show. This has been great.